You are listening to Pastor Greg Voorhees as he leads the 9 a.m. Sunday School class at Shenandoah Valley Baptist Church on March 5th, 2023. For more information about SVBC, you can visit their website, svbcfamily.com, or find them on all things social at svbcfamily. Good to be alive. I understand. I understand completely. Let's pray, and then we're gonna we're gonna finish this introduction. Even though we're gonna ha- kind of go through hyper speed through some of it, so we I want us to get started on chapter one next week. So let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Father, we just ask that you bless this time, and and, and, and Lord, just as we go through the study, we're hoping to learn more about your Word and more about Jesus. God just. Holy Spirit, to show us what you want us to see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. We're actually going to start on page 20. We're going to read just a paragraph or so, and then we're going to look at this little diagram. It says, Old Testament context. It says, A well-known story of Moses, the Israelites, and their exodus from Egypt is actually one it's been part, it's been on repeat since the beginning of the time. Not the plagues part, or the parting of the Red Sea part, or the walking through the wilderness for 40 years part. Those mind blowing details are unique to that time and place in history. But mankind's propensity to choose sin over God's purposes and plan has, remind, has remained firmly in place since the Garden of Eden. And, and I believe that's a very fair statement. I, I, I think that the we the, the cycle of sin, as we see in this little diagram, uh, is kind of what happened in the garden and something we see every day. First, you had God's plan, which is good and awesome and loving, and, and it's for the good and His glory. That God always has a plan, and it's a good plan because He's a good God. However, it seems like we always deviate from that plan. You know, God has one way, and then we have our own way, and we have a tendency of favoring our own. Uh, you know, too often. But when, when we do deviate from that plan, we, we need to be rescued. Once, once we kind of come, the Holy Spirit kind of brings us to that place and, and He helps us realize that, we often repent, we receive that forgiveness, um, and then um, we sin and go away on our own way again. This, so this, this is this, this thing of God's plan, our plan, you know, us deviating, us doing everything, us needing rescue, the Holy Spirit rescuing us. That, that, that's kind of the story of our lives. You, you know, I'm, I'm hoping as we, you know, get a few decades under our belt walking with the Lord, it happens less and less, but it still happens. You, you know, and, and to be honest, I think it might even be a little tougher when you've had a few decades under your belt because I think God probably, and this is where this milk and meat thing comes in, I think God expects us you know, when we mature, you know, to make less mistakes. He, you know, that, that, that's because he uses mature Christians to help lead younger Christians. And, and I think we have a tendency of, you, know, you want to know what really messes up a witness to a, a young Christian is when us old Christians, you know, do something really, really, you know. I'm, and I think about back in the 80s. During the age of televangelism, you know, and that, that was all the televangelists were out there, and and the uh, you know, like the bakers and 
and, and the uh, uh, Jimmy Swagger. You know, these, these were folks that people trusted, and, and they should have been able to trust them because you would figure they were mature Christians. But when, when, when they make mistakes, especially big ones like they made, it has a, it has a way of really derailing some people's faith long term. You know, I, the, the Jimmy Swagger thing, I, there was, a, there was a, a documentary called uh, Jesus Music. In the, uh, I think I talked about this a few weeks ago. But one, one incident, the, uh, Michael Sweet was talking about, he's, he's the lead vocalist for a, a, kind of a Christian rock type band uh, called Striper. They were, they've been around since the 80s, and they're, they're still playing. But they kind of grew up watching Jimmy Swagger on TV, and, and he said, I kind of, we kind of viewed him as a family. We viewed him almost like our pastor. And then when he held up one of their albums and was talking about it being devil's music, you, you, you know, it, it destroyed him. And, and he, was, he still talks about this decades later. You, you know, so when, when mature Christians you know, kind of make, make mistakes, and that's not what this lesson's about. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just kind of a sidebar thing that I, I think we need to be especially careful to try to do the right thing and to follow God the way he wants us to follow him as, as we've progressed through the years because... You know, he expects us to be meat eaters. I don't mean cows. You know, he expects us to he expects us to to act like mature Christians as we we've been around for a while. He does, and we have that expectation as parents. You know, my when when my kids were little, I don't had I didn't have the same expectations for them that I have now that they're in their thirties. You know, and and it's just. And that's the really cool thing about this father-child relationship that we have with God is I, I, it helps me connect to understand it because I understand my parent-child relationship with my kids. You, you know, and I, I think it's really kind of cool that, that, that with these parallels, you, you know, I get that sometimes my kids hurt me, but I still love them. You, you know, and that's, it's one of these things that and sometimes God, we hurt God, but he still loves us. And he always takes us back, even when we're in this little sin cycle. You, you, you know, not doing the stuff that he wants us to do, not doing the stuff that we should be doing. You know, he still loves us, and, and, and he always rescues us. Yeah, that, you, you know, just as surely as the sun will rise tomorrow, God will always bring you back. Uh, I, I mean, God's love is more consistent than natural law. You know, and to you know somebody like me who's who loves science. I mean, that's kind of a mind-boggling concept in itself because natural laws are natural laws. I mean, it, it's just always. But God is more consistent than even those things. You, you know, which which is pretty amazing. All righty, so let's flip over here to twenty-two. Actually, we do want to read these these couple of pages. It says, and, it go, and, and on it goes, in story after story in the Old Testament, we see the pattern play out, and the circumstances around the writings of the book of Isaiah are no different. Once again, the Israelites are in a sin cycle. God rescued their ancestors from Pharaoh and led them through the wilderness by the, by the cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, which meant he was the map. He fed them. Every day, uh, food appeared on the ground, and also water came from rocks. God conquered armies and stood in Israel's uh, way, 
that's armies that, that stood in Israel's way and established them in the land he promised them, which in its, that in itself was a miracle. Remember, of, of all the spies, you, you know, only there, there was only two that was like, hey, we can do this. Everybody else like, whoa, we're like grasshoppers, these folks. You know, so conquering that land was, in itself was a miracle. All the while, generation after generation, grumbled and complained and disobeyed the God who chose them. They made demands and changed God's plans, and everything got progressively worse. Enter Isaiah. We don't actually know a ton about the prophet Isaiah. The Old Testament that bears his name begins with the, this introduction. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, was, uh, which, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Azah, and, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, which tells us a few things about him. First, that he was the son of Amos, uh, about whom we know nothing else for certain. Jewish tradition suggests Amos was the brother of, <laughs> you got to love these names, uh, Amaziah, king of Judah, which uh, would put Isaiah in the royal bloodline, but don't quote us on that. Uh, he was a prophet to the southern Israelite kingdom of Judah. Again, we see that from Isaiah 1.1. Side note, in 930 BC, after the region of, uh, after the reign, I'm sorry, of King Solomon, the nation of Israel separated into two kingdoms. The northern tribes refused to accept Rehoboam, son of Solomon, as their king. The two kingdoms persisted as, as separate nations for the remainder of their histories, and both suffered under the corrupt kings, which should have been, should have been, should not have been a surprise. When God established the nation of Israel in the Promised Land, He told them that he would be their king, but they demanded an earthly one anyway. So he warned them if they established the monarchy in spite of his plan, they would suffer in their disobedience because humans are sinful, including and especially powerful humans like the rulers who made life very difficult for the nation of Israel. And suffer they did. You know, this, these are things that blow me away about the history of Israel. You know, the, before they asked for a king, they were getting marching orders directly from the throne of God. You, you know, I, can't, I would give anything to be in that situation. I would give anything to be able to go, in, go into my office back there and, and, and the voice of God tell me, do this, do that. You, you know, that, that would blow me away. You, you know, so I, I mean, I gotta, you know, I've got to depend on what I see in the Word. I've got to depend on, the, you know, the, kind of the Holy Spirit kind of, tugging at me one way or another or pointing me in directions and stuff. But if I could have gone into the Holy of Holies and God just tell me what to do, I would be good with that. You, you, you know, that would be, how many times have we just wished, oh, too bad this genie in a bottle thing isn't, isn't true. You can just rub the bottle and the genie pops up and, you know, you can tell it what to do or you could ask it advice, whatever the case may be. They had something way better than the genie in the bottle. That they had the Most High God on 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 the the, the phone. You, you know, you had the, the the special phone that you know you can pick it up and call the president. But they they had that. They had the Holy of Holies. They could just just you know, they could go in there. Moses could walk in there and say, "Okay, God, what you want for the day?" And, and that's but they that wasn't good enough. They wanted a human king. And, and what what do we know about human nature? Anytime you put a human in the equation. It's going to get messed up. It just is. None of us are perfect. It doesn't matter how. The only perfect human is Jesus. 
None of the rest of us are. So they, they had the perfect and they requested the imperfect. I, I can't even, that's one of the mysteries that still just boggle my mind to this day. We talked about the separation, the separation of, of the nation and, and how they had the northern and the, the, the southern kingdom. You know, so, you know, basically, when Rehoboam came in, you know, everybody was like, hey, your, your dad was a tough guy. You know, Solomon, Solomon may have been very wise, but, but his wisdom led him into self-dependency, and he became kind of a tough cookie. He demanded lots of taxes, and he, you know, he was hard on, on, on the tribes. And, and, there, and the, you know, the tribes came to him and was like, you know, buddy, you know, your dad was kind of tough. You know, could you ease up a little bit? So what's he do? He says, he goes to the, his wise counsel. He says, well, what should I do? And they're like, well, if you, if you make their life better, they will follow you forever. You, you, you know, that, that's, and I'll tell you, that's, that's, uh, that, that's leadership 101. I mean, if you can make people's lives better, they will listen to you. They will follow you. But then he goes to his buddies. And he's like, hey, you know, you know what should I do? And they're like, tell him, you think you're, my daddy was tough. Wait till you see me. I'm going to make things even harder. I'm going to make, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to, you think dad was rough. I mean, I am the man. So who did he listen to? He listened to his buddies. Where did they get him? He split the kingdom. Not even in half. Ten of the twelve tribes went north. Uh, I mean, that's a pretty significant rebellion. Did they pay for that rebellion? They absolutely did. You realize, if you, if you look through the list of the southern and the northern kings, every once in a while the southern kings, because that's the line of Judah, that's the one where the promise came through, they would, they would have a good king occasionally. They had a few good kings. In fact, don't quote me on this. I think it was about half and half, to be honest. But it was right around in there. But, but, but they, they had good kings. What, what's the thing that's noticeable about the northern kingdom? Every single one of them did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Every single one of them. There was not one good king ever in the northern kingdom. Did that catch God's attention? I don't know if you realize this. I've talked about this, but I talk about a lot of stuff. There's no way to remember all the junk I talk about. Do you remember which kingdom got taken first? It was the northern kingdom, the one with all the bad kings. Assyria came in, and, and, and they were taken before Babylon took the, the southern kingdom. And the Assyrians were not nice folks. I mean, the Assyrians being captured by the Assyrians, God letting his people be captured by the Assyrians is a serious thing. I've talked about the whole thing in Psalms about blesses, dash the babies on the rocks. The children on the rocks, you know, that's a call for justice. That's what the Assyrians did. That's the stuff that they did. That, that would have been the psalmist crying out for biblical justice. Because not only would they come in and just slaughter you, they would smash your babies on the rocks right in front of you just to break your spirit. You, you know, and, and then what they would do is that they would separate you. And, and that's, that's, the, that's the whole reason that we had the thing about Samaria, you know, the Samaritans. Assyria didn't take everybody. They took a lot of them, but they left some of them. And then they took foreigners and put them in the land where, into the northern kingdom where the, the Israelites used to be. So they, the, the Assyrians were kind of deluding them and separating them, keeping them apart from each other, just doing anything and everything they could to keep them down. 
and that's, that's, that's where the whole issue came between the Jews and the Samaritans is because when Assyria put the, the foreigners into their land, they started and they're mingling and they're marrying with the Jews that were left. And then they kind of became their own thing. You know, they, they saw themselves as being kind of separate. They started saying, hey, we are, we, because we had Mount Gerizim, you know, we are the, the true children of Abraham, even more so than the Jews. And then the Jews like, oh, no, 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 we're the true. And the, the problem was, is they were all children of Abraham. You, you know, but, but Assyria knew what they were doing. Assyria just caused a, a kind of a ripple effect that went on for a very long time where we had Jewish people hating each other because of where they lived and who they married. You, you know, so the northern kingdom paid dearly for their rebellion. And then later, the, in fact, it was, it was really kind of crazy about it. Do you remember who kind of made the deal with the Assyrians before they came in? The kind of, because there was somebody who was scared. It was the king of the south. He kind of made, he, he, he reached out to the Assyrians and basically they took care of his competition. You, you, you know, so, so the southern kingdom, talk about a bad move. The southern kingdom actually helped bring that upon the northern kingdom. I, I, I mean, that just, that's just like mind-blowing. But the southern kingdom did, they kept messing up. They did keep, they, they did have many, many bad kings. So then Babylon, you know, came in and that was the end of the two kingdoms. They went into exile together, and when they came out, they were one again. You, you, you know, so that the, the exile, and that's when I talk about discipline. Discipline sometimes is very, very hard. And, and something like, the, something like the, the, the exile would seem kind of extreme, but if you look at the, this pattern, the sin pattern of behavior we see in Israel's entire life, up until the, the exile, God did what He needed to do to break a lot of these behaviors. I, I, I don't see anywhere in Hebrew history after the exile whether it was idol worship. There was a lot of it before that. Think about it. In the very beginning, they had just, you, you know, Moses goes up on the mountain and he comes out and then his own brother helped, you know, beat a, the golden, a golden calf and they're like having a party down there and worshiping a golden calf. I I'm telling you, if I was God, I would have just swiped them all out. I would have. I would have been ticked off. So when we talk about the patience of God, God is very, very patient. Uh, I mean, He really, really is. But it took something as extreme as the exile to break that sin pattern. You know, what else did we, what else did we see? They, they began to honor God in a way that they never really did before. To this day, many Jewish writers... Jewish people still don't usually write out the word God, G-O-D, if they're talking about God. If, if you're reading something and you see capital G-D, it is a Jewish person because God's name is so holy that, you, you know, that many Jewish people don't even, to this day, they don't like writing God out if, it's, if, you're, if, if you're referring to the name of God. You, you know, there have been books that I've gotten in seminary that I still see that. Jewish, many Jewish people still do that. The, this whole thing, no other, the, the Ten Commandments got to be a real thing that, you know, after, to them after the, some of the biggest clashes between, between Pilate 
and, and these are these are things you have to see in history. These, when, when you when you read through extra biblical sources in history, and not not the Bible, some of the biggest clashes between Pilate and the Hebrew people have been things like putting um, the emperor's face on coins because it was a graven image. You, you know, so so they became very very guarded of of, of the name of God and 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 trying to observe. Yeah, the Pharisees were really messing up. You know, don't get me wrong. They 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 didn't have this. They still had a sin cycle, but it, but it was a lot of the sin behavior that they had before the exile. I'm saying seemed to have stopped after the exile. So God knew what He was doing. You, you know, but but yeah, they wanted the king, and, and boy, did they get it. Saul Saul was a he he was a kind of a weak guy. Uh, I mean, he was kind. Of, he did some really cool things, but he also, you know, he was. Think about with, with the story of David and Goliath. You know, Goliath, a great champion, is out there with the Philistines, and it's like Saul and all of his armies. They're like, they didn't want no parts of that challenge. It took a little shepherd boy to come out. I was like, what is your ass problem? This guy opposes the living God, the God of Israel. It took a little. It took a little guy with a slingshot. To take this guy out because their first king was afraid of their enemies. Don't get me wrong; I don't think I would want to fault Goliath. You know, from what I from what I've read, I mean, he was a champion and he sounded very big, and, and, and particularly the, Is, the Israelite people back then would have been much smaller than they are now because that's that's one thing you have seen. We all seem to be getting bigger as time goes on. You know, you look at those like those suits of armor back in the middle evil times. I mean, they're only like yay tall. You know, so Dave or so Goliath would have been especially large to them, but but even even to the size I am, I don't think I would have been tangled with the guy if I didn't have to. It says, "Suffer they did." Going back into the book, page twenty-three, it says Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Uzziah, and Hezekiah. Fun fact: the overlapping reigns of dates is because sometimes a king would begin to co-reign with his father. Which so we do see these overlapping dates. So it was almost like, you know, as one was getting older, the they it's 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 like it was almost like a mentoring type thing, and they would co-roll for a certain period of time, where where there is those those overlaps. You know, we even saw similar things to uh, we even saw similar things even in the Roman world. You know, Tiberius, uh, there was a, there was a guy who was about to uh, co-roll with. Tiberius, um, shortly, not long before his death, he was he was in charge of his 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 protection. You, you know, you didn't even get to Tiberius without going through this guy, and and then, but Tiberius found out he was he was looking to assassinate him and, and take over the whole whole kit and caboodle, and and then Tiberius had him put to death. So, but even this overlapping rule, you, you know, we didn't that, that wasn't uncommon in that in that world, even in even in the Roman world. A few other things we know about Isaiah. The reason we're looking at Isaiah is the entire this entire book focuses in the book of Isaiah. You know, this, this, our entire study is going to be it's going to be kind of central, not only in the life of Christ, but it, it refers back very heavily to Isaiah. We know Isaiah was married and was a father, and, and it's got the scripture references there. He apparently lived in Jerusalem. He wrote some records that are not part of scripture. He was a Jewish pseudographical work dating back to the first century B.C. Reports Isaiah was killed by being sawed in two by the order of Manasseh, king of Judah. Uh, the first, 
The, the, the first century work, the lives of the prophets in the Jewish Talmud, refer to this as well. Now, what is the pseudographical writing? It talks about this in this little teal writing down here. It's, they're not in the Bible, but they clear to be biblical in nature. There, there are writings, I have an entire book of them. I mean, it's like this thick of pseudographical writings. Basically, it was written by people who, they, they, for one reason or another, what they had written um, claims biblical authority, but when our folks, the ones that were deciding what, what was supposed to be in and what was supposed to be out, for some reason they found some reason to discredit them and not consider them part of the canon. Do I think some of these pseudographic writings, do I think some of them may be, you know, have kind of a higher level of authority than what we've assigned to them? I, I think they, some of them may. You know, the book of Jonah, Jesus refer, references it, you know, when he was, uh, but it didn't, make, it didn't make the cut, you know, when we put the books in the Bible. You know, so, but do I ever read them as, as, as being authoritative? No, I don't, simply because I don't need any extra books. I've got enough with what I already have. You, you know, so, you know, could I be missing out on, 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 on something important in some of these books? And, and they are an interesting read either way. It could be. But I do know that there's enough, and there are 66 books that keep me busy long beyond, you know, my lifetime. You know, so so people who know way more about it than I know about it made those decisions. You know, because there was a certain I don't remember specifically there was there was a criteria for the Old Testament what it take to get put in. When I, when I was working on my masters, I could have told you the New Testament was different. That's an easy one. It either had to be written by an apostle or it had to be written by somebody who was very closely connected to an apostle. You know, so. And that's that's why you know even Luke, he you know he was he was he was a good friend of Paul, you know that, that there was that that close connection. Hebrews, many scholars believe, you know, was written by Barnabas. Barnabas and Paul were very again very very close. The, the you know James was the half brother of Christ, you know, so I think that kind of makes kind of makes him kind of qualified, you know, so that, that that's. You, you know, but the Old Testament had a slightly different, it had a different criteria to get in. So, but some of these pseudographical writings, people, uh, you, you know, we've decided that they weren't, should not be part of the canon, but some of them claim that authority. And, and some of these pseudographical writings is where we learn about the martyrdom of, of Isaiah and how that happened. Now going over on 24... The book, of, the book of Isaiah is actually a collection of Isaiah's sermons and visions given over the decades he was in ministry between 740 and, and um, 680 B.C. So the entire book of Isaiah is not only you know, his sermons, it's, it's stuff that God showed him in visions. You, you know, some of his visions, and it's one of the reasons why the book of Isaiah is to me one of the most fascinating and one of the most scary because it's it's his the accuracy in which he talked about the crucifixion of Christ hundreds of years before it happened is is just it's just mind boggling you, you know the the whole suffering servant chapter you know my favorite chapter in the Old Testament yeah and that's out of Isaiah the you know he talked about things that it's when the 
when the New Testament writers were just talking about the crucifixion, other than the thing about pulling his beard out, almost everything he talked about, they had written, that they had seen it. You, you, you know, or even uh, with Luke, some eyewitness, eyewitness people who were eyewitnesses explained to him that they had seen these things. So, so his visions were like scary accurate. He, you know, all of them are. But, but with Isaiah, it, it, it's really like Daniel. Sometimes, you, you know, some of his prophecies, you know, they were they, they were also scary accurate. But some of them, it's just like. There, there's kind of some room for wiggle, you know, in the interpretation of what it may or may. I, you don't really see that in Isaiah. I, I mean, when you read Isaiah, it's almost like reading the New Testament account of the crucifixion of Christ. I, I, I mean, there's not, you don't see all the bears coming from one place and eagles from another and foxes and hounds and all, all the different things. And, and, um, of course, there's not foxes and hounds. I'm just throwing that in there. But 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 there, there's there's not that there's not nearly as much symbolism or that you have to kind of depend on the Holy Spirit to kind of decipher for you. You you, you know the visions of Isaiah are, are, are pretty pretty straightforward. You, you know so it, it's the whole suffering servant chapter just it, it just blows me away. You, you know they even talked about it. You know Jesus. You know, being led, being you know, taken away like a sheep, you know, to his shears, you know, without, didn't even open his mouth, you know. Jesus didn't, never defended himself. You, you, you know, when he was confronted with certain questions, he, he, he you know, he would answer very truthfully. You, you know, and I'll tell you what, you want to talk about brave. He's standing in front of Pilate, you know, the guy that he knows is getting ready to put him to death. And he's like, you know, you know, I've got the ability to basically kill you or free you. And then he's like, you know what? If, if it wasn't my father's will, you wouldn't have me now. You, you know, that's kind of a, you know, if I didn't let you take me, you, you know, that, that's kind of, that, that's, that's a brave statement. But it's true. You, you know, so, so Jesus, even though he didn't defend, he, he didn't open the mouth, his mouth to defend himself, he was still presenting very hard truths that were very, you read, it's like, oh my goodness, I can't even imagine what Pilate was, was running through his head, you know, when things like that were being said to him. You know, these Romans didn't really like to be challenged. And said, so, and here's the point. Isaiah spent the better part of his life warning a rebellious, faithless generation of people to turn back to God who loved them, which should sound familiar because despite the almost 3,000 years of the past since Isaiah preached to the nation of Israel like them, we have an unfortunate propensity to choose sin over God in this plan for our lives. But thankfully, Isaiah didn't just point out the problem. He also pointed to the one whom Jews and Gentiles alike would be reconciled to God and be faithful. And made faithful, I'm sorry. You know, so, and that's, that's true of all of God's prophets and all of his prophecies. Even the warning ones. All of the warning ones always had, he, he didn't, they just, it, there was never a period. It was like, it was, there was always a semicolon. This is, this is you know, this bad thing's going to happen if you don't pay any attention, but instead of it being a period, there's a semicolon because there's still more of the story. And, and that last part is always, you know, God's desire to bring them back and to restore them. And he always has. Always has. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's the really... 
That's the really cool thing. God's, and I talked about natural law earlier, God is more consistent than the laws of gravity. He is. Think about it. There are places because, where's that place that you can take your car? I know it has something to do with, with, with the magnetic fields. But you can park your car at the bottom of the hill, put it in neutral, and it, and it goes uphill. It pulls it uphill. You, you, you know, I know that doesn't exactly defy the laws of gravity. That's not where I'm going. But there, there, there are things that there, there are things that would make it almost look like it was defying, you, you know, this downward pull. But there is, there isn't, there isn't any of that in God. He is 100 percent consistent all the time. There is no wavering. There's no changing. The God that we read about in the Bible in both Testaments, it's the same God that we pray to today, and He hasn't changed. His mercy has not changed. His desire for us to, you know, to come back when we mess up, it has not changed. His willingness to always take us back, it's never changed, and it never will. You know, what's, what we talk about Hebrews say, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. You can, that, you, you can, you can take that to the bank. Uh, I, I mean, that's... Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Tell me, God. Actually, let's read, let's read this little section, and we'll look at some of these questions. So I want to make sure we get this reading part done. On page 25, it says, Jesus is... The first 39 chapters of Isaiah deal mainly with the scathing condemnation and woe for Israel's uh, tremendous sin and hardness of heart and the resulting consequences they faced. But then it takes a turn, because after making a powerful case against God's chosen people, Isaiah began to speak words of comfort. And that's, that's the way God is. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. You know, how often do we fight fights that God's already won for us? That her iniquity is pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. What is he talking about? Who is he talking about? In the wilderness, a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. Where do we hear that from? Who is he talking about? John the Baptist. So despite all of the things that Israel has done, he, he's now pointing to the forerunner of the Messiah. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level in the rough places a plain. What is he talking about? Raising, raising, raising valleys, lower, lower mountains. Whenever a, whenever a king would come, let's, let's say... Before a king would come to, let's say they were going to take the road to Judah. We're just using this as an example. Long before the king would come, his people would go out, and they would basically level out a road. All the high places, they would make it low. All the low places, they'd make it high so, so the, the, the king could come, that the king could be ushered in. So what was John the Baptist doing? He, that's what he was doing. He, it wasn't physical mountains and physical valleys, but he was bringing down people from their high places with his words from God, and he was up and he was lifting up the, the you know the, the the lowly, and he was he was he was his words from God were were making a level land, a level a level plain 
for the king, for King Jesus to come and to enter. So, so John the Baptist was doing the very thing that, that, that any king's people would do. They, would, they were preparing the way for the Lord. They were making a, a road. They were making a path by, by leveling everything out. But John the Baptist was doing it on a crazy level. It, it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't dirt. You know, he was preparing people. You know, he upset a lot of high people. That's what cost him his head. He was upsetting a lot of high people and bringing them down. And, and, and the, the lowly, he was rising up. He was preparing the way for the Lord. You know, and, and then Isaiah was talking about this. He was, and he was talking about it in, in a context and wording that the people would have understood because they knew kings did this. They knew kings' people did this. That they knew that this voice crying in the wilderness was preparing, preparing the road for the king to come. That's what he was doing. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 40, 1 through 5. It says, through, through Isaiah, God spoke words of love over Israel during the time of the rebellion, during the time of idol worship, wandering hearts, and intense callousness to sin, not to mention all the painful consequences they were experiencing as a result of their choices. And that's, a, that's an important to grasp, too, that it's a result of their choices. And that's the big difference between the discipline and, and the punishment. He, he delivered God's message of hope before their repentance. So even before they repented, God was already trying to comfort them. He was already giving them hope before they had, in their eyes, probably a reason to hope. And just so we're on the same page, the voice of the wilderness that Isaiah spoke about hundreds of years before turned out to be the New Testament, John the Baptist. Like Isaiah, John preached a message of repentance, but also of hope, since they told everyone who has ears to hear that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, was coming. Enter Jesus. Jesus is the hope spoken in the Old Testament, the Messiah, and revealed in all of his glory in the New Testament, the one through whom all have hope. Hope that their sin cycle can be broken. Hope that this world, with all of its disappointments and heartache, isn't all there is. Hope that their relationship with God can be restored and can thrive. Hope that, hope that as we follow Jesus, we'll that he'll change us from the inside out, making us joy-filled, faith-filled, and faithful. Jesus is the whole point of the whole of Scripture because mankind needs saving, and he's it. But how does the salvation work itself out in their lives. Well, that's what we're going to be covering in the coming weeks because like those who have, been, have gone before us, in Jesus we find our true identity, purpose, and hope. So why, why are we going to be looking so heavily in Isaiah? Why is the study looking in Isaiah? Because Isaiah, again, he was, he was preaching hope to a hopeless people a hard people. Just, and, and he's still, he's, he's talking to the church today. He's still talking to a group of people who can be sin-riddled, have that, in that cycle and still be calloused. You, you know, when I, some of the hardest words I've ever heard towards people in the world have come from people in the church. And, I'm not, and again, I'm not talking about Shenandoah Valley Baptist Church. Been a lot of places. Heard a lot of things. And some of the, some of the hard, most hardened hearts I've ever seen have actually been inside church doors. So Isaiah is speaking to the church 
just as much as he did to Israel. You know, literally now thousands of years later, the hope that Isaiah was trying to give Israel, that God was giving Israel through Isaiah, he's giving to the church today. Because that message is still true. There has been, fortunately, what we have seen, the beauty of the church age, is we get who the voice in the wilderness was, and we get what his message was, and we got that he made the way, that he made the path clear for Messiah to come. So we get to, we get to live the other side of the crucifixion. So we, we get to immediately step into the hope of, of Jesus Christ. We get to immediately step into the, the, all the benefits that, that, that comes with a relationship with Christ, where before, before Jesus, it was all hope. Now, we, now it's more than just hope. It can be our reality, our reality now. It, it's, it's not just a promise anymore. It's a reality now. So we're going to be looking at Isaiah because we too are so much like the, 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 the people of Israel. And, and it's a different context. It looks a little different. Are we beating gold in the golden calves? No, but are we, are we devoting all of our time into buying fancy cars or big houses and, and, and ignoring hungry people? You, you know, that seems to be a problem in America. What, what is the American dream? The American dream has nothing to do with Jesus. It should be. And it may have been the intent in the beginning. But when people talk about the American dream now, it's about stuff. It, it's about self. It, it's, it's about getting all the stuff that nobody else in the world gets because we're rich. You, you know, the American dream is about, it's, 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 it's self-centered. You know, so we might not be making golden calves, but we do truly have idols in our lives. We really do. Is there anything in our life? We're not so different from the, Israel, the Israelite people. Are there things in our lives that we put before God? And I don't want you to answer that right now, because sometimes that requires thought. Because it's easy, it was easy for Peter to say to Jesus, I, I, will, you, you know, I will follow you even to, even, even to death, man. I'm with you. I'm your ride, ride, ride or die partner. It was easy for Peter to say that to Jesus. But, but it's, it's one thing for it to be true. You know, so I don't want you to, I don't want you to, oh no, Jesus is the most important thing in my life. Thank you, Jesus. But then when you really start thinking about it, is he really the most important thing in your life? Is there something that when you're at home alone that you think about more? Is there something you work harder for? And I'm not, please don't think I'm saying this from, from a place of judgment. Because I wish I could say that I had to think hard about things that I put more time and attention in than I do Jesus. It's, it's not that hard. There are many things in my life I put before Christ. You know, and as bad as that may sound, let's keep it real here. You know, let's keep it real here. You, you know, I fret over getting my credit cards paid off so I don't have to worry about it anymore. I can't remember the last time I fretted over my relationship with Christ as much as I have credit. You, you know, let's be honest. You, you know, right now, and, and, and I get, 
I, I get that it's because of kind of the circumstance now. But I have mom's car. Mom, oh, mom's car when she, uh, oh, actually I was there when she bought it. Oh my goodness. That woman was a negotiator. We were talking to the salesman and she's like, do, do I get the police discount? I'm like, the police discount? I said, Mom, you're not a cop. My son's a cop. I'm like, I don't get a discount. Why would you get a discount? She said, what about preacher's moms? Do preacher's moms get a discount? And she's like, this is like her with, and I was saying, what church was that? That's when I was planning the church in North Carolina. She said, pastors, pastors' uh, moms, don't they get discounts? I'm like, Mom, I don't think it works that way. And I mean, she was, you, you know, but it's that car. And then she put my name on it. She put my name on it probably about a year and a half, two years ago. So cause she, she always worried about me because I'm the poor one in my family. You, you know, actually, God's really blessing me right now. But up until I came here, and I got two jobs, they're paying me really well. Up until that point, not even a year ago, the, the, I was clearly the poor person in my family. So mom always fretted over, that, over me, and that's why she put me in the car. She wouldn't make sure I had a car. So it's sitting in my driveway now. And to be honest, I'm afraid to drive it because it's mom's car. I don't want anything to happen to it. You know, I'm afraid to, I'm afraid to take it out on the road because even though and I'm a pretty good driver, there's a lot of people who aren't good drivers out there. You know, I'm so worried that something's going to happen to mom's car. The check engine light's on. And I'm like, well, I got to read it. I got to figure out what's going on with mom's car. So what's the point of all this? So mom's car isn't, it may or may not be an idol in my life because it's something that I cherish a whole lot right now. And that's because I'm dealing with all this stuff. But do I worry about my relationship with Christ as much as I do that car? Right now, I'm, I don't. And, and, and again, it, it's, I'm trying to be honest here. Sometimes the, the sometimes honesty hurts. honesty hurts, especially when you're talking about yourself. When you realize what you're what you're what you're saying is wrong when you're saying it, but you say it anyway because it's true. You, you know, so so why is this? So even though Isaiah is still speaking to, just like he was speaking to them about their idols and their sin, he's speaking to us about our idols and their sin. But the beauty, the beauty of the book of Isaiah, and I know we've talked about this, is that it doesn't end with the condemnation. The condemnation that comes with putting things before God, it's a message of hope. It's a message of Jesus is coming. And we get to see the, we are so fortunate to be on the other side of the crucifixion. That it's not something we have to, we don't have to be like the Jewish people for years. When's Messiah coming? When's Messiah coming? And the ones that don't believe that he's come yet, they're still saying it. When's Messiah coming? We don't have to say that. We get to enjoy the benefit of knowing Messiah is here. He's here. He's been here. He's been here in flesh. He's done some crazy awesome things, including saving my life. He did some crazy things including pain for my sin. He did some crazy things like making it so that I don't have to go to a priest who would then go into the Holy of Holies to talk to God for me. I get to talk to God directly. You know, that's a huge thing. That is something, that is a benefit that you have that probably people would kill for before the, the crucifixion. 
That, that big gigantic, that big ginormous, the, the curtain that separated man from God, it tore from top to bottom because he was saying, you can come. You don't need a priest anymore. In fact, because of the crucifixion, you don't need to kill anything anymore. You don't need to kill lambs or, and, and goats and cows. You don't have to do that anymore. You can come because my son has made you righteous. He has given you his righteousness. Can you imagine what a gift that is? You don't have to do the work. Jesus gave you his righteousness. You want to talk about a gift. You know, there's a parable in, in, in the New Testament about people being ready. You, you know, they, the king was inviting people to the, to the wedding of the bridegroom. And, and, and people, they, they, you had to get dressed. You had to get dressed right. You couldn't come into the presence of the king unless you were dressed right. You, you know, you had, to have that, you had to have that robe, that, that clean robe. But here's the beautiful thing about because of the life that we live post the, the crucifixion, is when we ask Jesus in our heart, he takes this beautiful white spotless robe and he puts it on us. He gives us his robe, his righteousness. And that's what gives us the ability to walk straight into the throne room of God and make our requests known to our Father. Something nobody could do before Jesus. Only the high priest had the ability to do something like that. Every single one of us has that ability because Jesus has... He's, he's wrapped us in his righteousness and given us the right to be sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we have the ability to approach the Father with a request and make them known. And you want to know what? He listens and he responds. You know what? That, 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 that hope. We get to walk in the hope that Isaiah only got to, to, to predict, to prophesy about. And that's what we're going to be looking at in our study. Starting next week, we're going to be starting chapter 1, what it means to be chosen. Before Jesus, yes, the chosen people were the Jewish people. Did he, did he not want us? No, that's not the case. They were chosen because we talked about this. He used his relationship with Abraham, and he protected this chosen people to protect the line of the Messiah. So after Jesus was born, and, 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 he, and he died and he rose again, all that stuff wiped away. Paul says that, that there's no longer man or woman or Greek. Or Jew. We're all one in, in, in Christ. Now, all those, all those lines have blurred away. So the hope, the hope that Isaiah talked about, it was meant for us too. And that's what we're going to look at. What it means to be chosen, yeah, before Jesus, the word chosen was connected with the Jewish people. Now the word chosen is connected to you. You are just as chosen as Abraham. Think about that for a second. Abraham, the father of many nations, the whole reason that God established the, the, the people of Israel was his relationship with this man. But you are chosen as much as Abraham was chosen. Try to wrap. If you ever feel like you're small, that you're like a church mouse in a big church, I'm telling you, it's not true. You are chosen. You are chosen. You are made in the image of God, and you were chosen by Him. And because of Jesus, you have every right of sonship and daughtership. You are a co-heir with Christ. 
I can't even, I can't even wrap my head around that. Co-heir with Christ. I've talked about that off and on up here. Co-heir with Christ. I can't even picture what that means. I can't wrap my head around what that means. A co-heir with Christ, the Messiah. Basically, all the benefits that he receives is the Son of God we receive as well. Can you, can you, this isn't the sermon today, I promise. But it just blows my mind. And that's what the study's about, what it means to be chosen. We're going to look hard at it. We're going to look hard at what that means. And you're going to be surprised because you may have written, you may have read Isaiah a thousand times. You may have read the story of Jesus a thousand times. Well, we're going to make it real to you. You are in the narrative. You always have been. You have always been in the narrative of the Bible. You've always been in the narrative of the will of God. You've always been in the narrative of what God's big plan is for this place. His big plan for eternity. You're part of the narrative. You're part of the story. And you're just as important as anybody else in it. You are just as important as the prophet Isaiah. You are. You are just as important as, as Abraham. You're just as important as Moses. Did they have callings in their lives that were like mind-boggling? Yeah, they did. doesn't make you any less important. If you pray for this church and you pray for the people in this church, you have a role that's just as important. It's just different. That is so... That, that's, I'll, I'll tell you what. I might get up here and preach every Sunday. And I might share the stuff that I've learned over the years. But I'll tell you what, if, if I walked away from the church for three or four weeks, you know, somebody like Bruce could step right in and you wouldn't miss a beat. Now, now Bill Funk, on the other hand, true story. Land and building guy. The, the, he is equally important to me in this place because I'll tell you what, this, this, this place stops working without Bill. It's true. Especially right now. This, this roof over this gym is a stinking nightmare. Yeah. And let me tell you what, this week, the, the, the leadership, I, I learned yesterday, the leadership's really been kind of shielding me this week from everything that's been going on. Apparently stuff's like getting ruined in classrooms, all this. I didn't know any of this was going because I knew I had enough on my plate this week. That thing is a nightmare. But it's, it's these folks are, in my opinion, more important than what, what, than what I am to this church. No, it's true, Bill. Well, it's very true. You are chosen. Your role in this church is equally as important as anybody else's. Equally as important. I, I, I'll tell you what, there, there's no... I, I know in leadership classes they talk about you know, the janitor and the, being no more important than the president. And like, you want to know what? It's not just flowery words. It's true. Any organization, the cleaning people. If, if if you stop collecting the trash and you stop making sure there's toilet paper in the in, in the stalls, let me tell you what bad things happen. So so I'm telling you, everybody's everybody has a chosen role because you are a chosen person. Never, 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 never look down on what you do, what you think you should be doing, and you don't. You're doing what you're doing because God has placed you in that spot. You're a chosen, chosen group of folks.
Let us pray and then I think I need coffee. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, I just thank you as we've finished this introduction. God, I look forward to, as we get into chapter 1, what it means to be chosen, God. I know I've, I've done this study before, and I know it's a great study, and God, we're just going to take it at your pace so we can see what you want us to see. And God, just let the, the truths from the book of Isaiah and, and, and the Gospels, may they just, just, just flood our hearts so that we can get a better picture of not only who you are, but who we are in you. Lord, we just ask that we exalt Christ to the place in our hearts that he needs to be, that we exalt Christ as number one. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.